Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, it may be chilly outside and we might be uh, cruising into uh, winter, but 3CR continues, and uh, yes, we are going into our uh, radiothon. Very important stuff. Uh, it runs from uh, in June, and uh, we'd love you to uh, throw a, a bit of cash our way so that we can continue. Um, it's our target's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And if you're a regular listener of Solidarity Breakfast, please, please, please throw me some money so that I can prove my worth. Uh, anyway, moving right along. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about reflecting on the whole thing about uh, 3CR and Radiothon. Uh, one of the reasons why 3CR is so important is was represented by the uh, Israeli attacks on Palestine, uh, the West Bank, uh, Gaza Strip. Um, the... Uh, the prevailing evidence on the mainstream media is that it is uh, a two, uh, you know, a, an even match. But of course, that's ridiculous. Uh, Israel has is the fourth largest uh, military presence in the world, and uh, the people in the Gaza are uh, defenceless in in reality. And uh, the bald faced lie of uh, attacking, uh, precisely attacking the uh, foreign media building in Hamas, which is a very uh, in. Uh, in that area, which is a very, you know, it's been described as a, as the um, uh, the biggest concentration camp in the world, you know, very tightly uh, um, bound together that those buildings, uh, and then having them uh, say publicly to the world in their uniforms with uh, Ned Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, is his reasonable voice saying that, you know, there were Hamas in this building, therefore it was okay for them to target it. Uh, I went to the uh, demonstrations last uh, last week uh, and uh, it was a very impressive uh, group uh, um, gathering of people, of pa- local Palestinians who live in Australia now, but also supporters uh, and uh, it was interesting to me, one of the speakers uh, noted that uh, they had been organising this particular demonstration since April because, of course, last week on the 15th was uh, the uh, official date of the Nakba, uh, the uh, removal of uh, Palestinians originally 78 years ago uh, from their uh, lands. Um, and uh, they... 
it's become an annual event for uh, the uh, might of Israel. Um, And it's also interesting that uh, people who are very mighty in terms of wealth and uh, armaments constantly represent themselves as being the victims. Now, apparently the Israelis have decided that they're going to, the military, the Zionists have decided that uh, they are going to uh, ceasefire, you know, out of the goodness of their hearts after 11 days and uh, a, a disproportionate level of killing of children. Um, 90,000, uh, the UN have said that about 90,000 um, uh, Palestinians are now dislocated in the, uh, you know, uh, are uh, in a position, a polis position in terms of housing, etc., because of the attacks. Now, the original point in this discussion, of course, was that uh, on 3CR there is a consistent uh, discussion around uh, the issues that are uh, di- um, affecting Palest- uh, Palestinians in their homelands. Uh, and uh, we continue to uh, voice the uh, the community's uh, um Concern, uh, and it's one of the reasons for why we're an important station. That uh, the voices you can hear your own voice uh, on this station, and so hopefully you will consider it, uh, uh, making sure that we continue to broadcast. Um, now uh, there is going to be another demonstration today uh, in support, so uh, we'll hear what they've got to say. Join us to protest the forced evictions and ethnic cleansing in Palestine this Saturday, May 22nd at 1pm outside the State Library. Along with your signs and banners, please bring your masks and hand sanitizer to keep the rally COVID safe. For more information, head to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and on Thursday I went to Parliament Steps. There was a group of people from Sunbury who were uh, demonstrating against the uh, toxic dump that uh, is being proposed or potentially proposed for uh, where the PFAS coming out of the Metro Tunnel uh, development is uh, being, um, there's a thought that it may be put there. Um, it's a complicated uh, situation because uh, there's a battle on on a whole lot of grounds, but it's it's very simple for the people who live in the community. So this is uh, a part of a report that I made up regarding the Sunbury toxic dump. My name is Councillor Tonya Dudzik from Warrigal Shire. Toxic dumps in outer suburban places, and uh, we've been wondering about what's going on in uh, Sunbury. What's going on here for what do you think as a councillor? Um, the, the current proposal, um, a decision is very close on where the toxic soil will be um, deposited. And this is the toxic soil from the uh, uh, Metro Tunnel, right? That's right, the Westgate Tunnel soil. Um, three sites have got EPA approval and Transurban will be making a decision very shortly. Um, and residents in all areas um, are very angry and concerned um, and information 
about the content and testing of that soil is very concerning and hasn't been released publicly and should be. And it's PFAS that people are all very worried about. Um, that's correct um, and um, it's uncategorised soil. So um, if the soil was pre-tested it would be um, less concerning but what is proposed is that uncategorised soil be moved to these sites and then tested to see its level of toxicity. Now also the government, Victorian government has always said that it's actually transurban's uh, problem but it, it's bigger than that isn't it? Um, the government has um, put a tender out and Transurban are the ones that will decide it, but it is actually the government that is paying Transurban. Um, the decision is being deferred to Transurban, but we all know who pays the bills. But also it's about the welfare of your constituents. Um, yes, it is, because they're concerned about the impact of trucks um, on them, because um, it will be a massive impact on roads in Sunbury and Bacchus Marsh. Um, unreasonable trucks, it is a, a risk on our roads. Um, and it's also a risk because we do not know the content of the soil and the documents um, behind that have not been released publicly and they haven't been released to uh, even the council to see what is actually in the soil. So PFAS has been linked to the cancers that go with, um, uh, that have happened to uh, firefighters. Uh, it was put there during the Coote Island. It was the result of the Coote Island uh, disaster, basically. Um, there is evidence that it's extremely toxic. And can you tell me uh, where they, they think they're going to put it? I, I've been told that it's probably near... Uh, agricultural outlets near the river, near uh, housing developments? Is it in the ground? What are they intending to do? Um, they have to have purpose-built um, disposal areas for it. Um, supposedly they'll be lined, um, but the sites of these areas, they are quite close to residential areas and schools. Um, and yeah, it's concerning. Um, it would be better placed elsewhere. Um, but my view is that we should actually have the information on the content of the soil publicly released um, and yeah we should be looking at it more closely. So my name's Chris O'Neill uh, and I represent Sunbury Against Toxic Soil. Uh, I'm from 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. We've been following the uh, toxic dump uh, issue in outer suburbs and fires etc but this PFAS uh, issue is really uh, boiling isn't it? Yeah it is, uh, our, our community is uh, you know obviously under threat from uh, from becoming Australia's biggest toxic dump and uh, as you can see here today it's, uh, it's not something that people want. Yeah can you tell me what are the specific concerns? Yeah so the specific concerns of us uh, as a community are that uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got a, a considerable amount of uh, potentially contaminated toxic soil that is going to come to our community. It's going to be disposed of or dumped, uh, I should say, uh, uh, near homes, near businesses, near schools, uh, and, and essentially be untreated. Uh, the majority of the soil will not be treated, uh, only the water will be. Tell me about the water. So the, when, when they create the sludge to, to dig through the tunnel, they, they, they're essentially they're mixing the mud with, with water. 
uh, and it will come out as a slurry. Uh, so as they dispose of that in, in the communities, they're allowing that to dry out for up to 21 days uh, and they will just treat the water content. They will not be treating the soil. And, and that's a big issue for a lot of, um, a lot of people. They're, they're really misunderstanding what they're saying they're going to do these companies are saying they're going to treat the soil, but they're only going to treat the water content. The soil will remain untreated. So they're using a whole lot of sort of weasel words to make people feel that it's all under control. Marketing happy words is what I will, I will call them. Uh, they've got some really good marketing and spin. Uh, they're very well guided by politicians uh, and they are, they are basically saying what they need to say as a minimum to get across to the community. One of the things that well, that councillor who just spoke to me said was that uh, Transurban will make it, be making this decision. That seems uh, a bit uh, a bit outlandish when you consider it's to do with uh, that a private company makes a decision that's going to have an outfit, uh, an effect on all these people. Yeah, I uh, I personally I when I went to the last election I did not vote for Transurban, and uh, I feel that they're wielding far too much power over this government. Uh, they have signed contracts that they knew there was a problem uh, and, and they knew this back as far as 2014. And we're sitting here 2021 and uh, we still have not got a resolution to this problem. And, and Transurban is really dragging their feet here. Now, Sunbury is uh, close to quite, uh, to uh, agricultural land, to uh, housing developments, schools, rivers. Concerns? Definitely, we're, we're very close to rivers that feed into the Maribyrnong, which then feed into Port Phillip Bay. Uh, we've got one of uh, Victoria's biggest um, commercial composting facilities on, on the site as well, which feeds into many of our food industries. Uh, viticulture, so our wine industry, which is one of Victoria's biggest industries, uh, all comes from this facility. Uh, so they're going to potentially risk all of that to dispose of soil to save them save them a few dollars. Now I know that uh, some uh, they've got uh, several sites that they, they were looking at. One of them was out of Bacchus Marsh. Uh, they, they're really unhappy. <laughs> Sunbury obviously is closer. Is that what the uh, attraction is? Uh, we know that transport is going to be one of the biggest expenses for, for this project. Uh, it's it's not that it's closer. I think what they've needed to do is go and tick the boxes of getting three uh, contracts uh, offered uh, and then they'll make a, a choice. Uh, we, we actually don't know where it's going to end up. We, we fear that it might end up at all three sites uh, because of the considerable volume that's going to be created. We think and we genuinely believe that all three sites are going to receive this spoil. The PFAS thing is actually a scandal from the beginning to the end, i.e. Uh, Transurban put in a quote which was under the amount they would need to get rid of such a toxic amount. They could have predicted it because it was there after the Coot Island disaster. We know that it's linked to the cancers that have happened to the fire people. When, when they get cancers, they no longer have to fight to the death, literally, to get compensation. It's now been agreed that it is incredibly toxic stuff, right? And when the last time this cleared up, they were talking about putting the, the leavings, the tailings, which I'll have to say they put along Footscray Road covered in black plastic for a considerable amount of time into a, uh, not underground, but in a, a raised uh, lined facility. Is that correct? Is that, am I imagining that? The, the understanding that we've got from the worst of the worst soil at the moment on the project has been treated at a place called Solva Altona, 
We're not able to confirm that, but we believe it's been treated uh, to one of the world's best practices. The problem that they've got at the moment, though, is they've got up to three million tonnes of contaminated spoil that's going to come from the tunnels. Uh, that's what's causing them all of this, this issue at the moment. So whilst they're treating small amounts properly, they're going to treat the volume. They're, they're not going to treat the volume that's generated. So they actually do have a way of dealing with this soil? They do, yeah. There's, uh, there's many uh, different opportunities we've presented those to government. Uh, there's a number of different alternatives, including uh, treating the soil on sites. Uh, we've got, I think it's three facilities that can treat this, uh, this soil within 10 kilometres of the tunnel. Uh, and it has all come down to cost for Transurban. And as I said before, I didn't vote for Transurban to save me money. I voted for, 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 for a government to build infrastructure, but not kill our communities. Uh, also, we should actually point out, I suppose it's a bit un, um, nervous, uh, a nervy thing for the Labor government, which is that it's Tim Pallas is part of, uh, is a representative of your communities. Uh, Tim Pallas is a representative of one of the areas. Uh, I, I, from, from what I understand, he's been silent, as have all the ministers. Uh, Tim Pallas wields amazing power within this government and could do the right thing by this community, but has chosen to be silent because he's been elected as a member of, uh, of a party that's building this infrastructure. Well, I actually did ask him the last time this came up. I actually had the chance to actually ask him, and he said flatly it was Transurban's responsibility. The, the, uh, the government is a party of this contract. They have an amazing amount of power. They could be mandating that Transurban do the right thing, but they're not. The western suburbs have been um, uh, gifted with some pretty uh, horrendous stuff, but obviously it's become an aspirational area. It has. Uh, I moved to the western suburbs only only 10 years ago. I love the area. It's a beautiful, gentrified area. It's uh, you know home to many, many families, uh, and and it's growing. It's some of the fastest growing real estate. In, in Australia and to think that we've got some of the worst toxic dumps and, and mind you, the, the biggest landfill in the southern hemisphere you know, in the western suburbs just a kilometre from homes is appalling. So all these people that have come out here today, there's a, a broad range of people that are involved. Mm -hmm. um, do you, uh, can you tell me about uh, how this has developed? Uh, this is developed because the community is just so opposed to uh, disposing toxic soil in their community. It's, uh, we haven't been consulted, we haven't been communicated to, uh, we haven't had a chance to raise our voice. Uh, the Minister has ignored us at every possible turn. The local member has been silent. We, we have not, uh, we've put out many invites to the local, the local MP to, to come and join us and stand with his community, but he has made a decision not to. He's made a decision to not stand with this community. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we are on the steps of Parliament House for our last Thursday when the people from Sunbury came uh, to uh, make their... It was on uh, Budget Day and, of course, Tim Pallas is our Treasurer. They uh, are really concerned about the toxic dump in Sunbury. But, of course, it was a political uh, feeding frenzy. There were a lot of Liberals uh, spouting their um, credentials as supporting the uh, community. 
and uh, they were because they can see opportunities for their um, futures in that area. And also uh, there was independence speaking as well. Um, and uh, but the one that I chose to play is Janet Rice because there was this fascinating tussle between the uh, quite uh, aggressive uh, Liberal Party uh, undertones where they uh, were, um, one person actually said that the EPA were in the pockets of the Labor Party. Now, um, I have a longer memory than they do. I remember the open the fires at the open cut at Morwell and uh, the Napthine government using the EPA uh, in a way that uh, one would have thought was uh, a little bit uh, underwhelming for a apparent regulator. So uh, uh, let's hear what uh, Janet, Rice, uh, Janet Rice said, and uh, then I got to speak to her afterwards. Look, I'm Janet Rice. I'm your Green Senator, born and bred in the West. Yeah. Yeah. And I've now I have lived in Footscray for the last 30 years. Your community is being dumped on. Yeah. Yeah. And it is not past and present and just to remind ourselves that when you're talking of unfairness, what what's gone on in Australia's history, we need to take account of and we need treaties with our First Nations peoples. But unfairness, and basically it is unfair and this government has known about it right from the very beginning. Yes. This whole project has been a travesty. It has been a litany of poor planning. It has been a litany of government just riding roughshod over communities because they can get away with it. It's been a government that has basically just been doing deals with their big business mates, particularly transurban. The, pe the people that are benefiting from this project, from you being dumped on by the toxic soil being dumped in your community, it's not you, it's not even the people who are supposedly going to benefit from the Westgate Tunnel, because the latest statistics on the Westgate Tunnel is it will probably save people about three minutes in commuting time. Three minutes. And you'll pay a toll for that privilege. So three minutes, a toll, pushing probably $10 billion of your money. It's not the community who are benefiting from this Westgate Tunnel. It is transurban. It is big business. It is the road builders. It is the mates of the Dan Andrews government. So, what are we going to do about it then? I mean, clearly you have got a really strong case. We know that PFAS is toxic. That PFAS is a cancerous chemical. I mean, I'm in the Senate. And we've had Senate inquiries about the dangers of PFAS. We've seen the, the sites that have got PFAS on them that are contaminated having to really deal with decontamination and cleaning up their sites. But that doesn't mean that the soil just gets dumped in your backyard. That is such a bad and such an old-fashioned last century, in fact, last millennium way of dealing with environmental problems. There are other solutions here. So not only then is this, is this road and is the dumping of soil on you incredibly bad planning and in the interest of big business, it's also being really poorly regulated. Yeah. The Environment Protection Authority are failing you. 
that my colleagues in there and for me in the Senate, we are on your side. We are going to be working with, with you. We will be speaking out for you and standing up for you until you get some fairness and justice. Thanks for inviting me to speak. I find it interesting that the, I'm the 3CR, and I find it interesting that the Liberals are talking about the uh, uh, the uh, EPA as uh, the Labor Party's EPA. But I've got a long memory. I remember the fires down at. Um, yeah, they used the. Um, yeah. Look, the Liberals are as bad as the Labor Party, essentially. Both major parties, they take communities for granted. They are in the pockets of big business and they're billionaire mates. They would be doing exactly the same if they were in government, frankly. So we know that, you know, although that there is a concern here, people want support from all sides of politics, we've got to make sure that there are politicians, both in Spring Street and in Canberra, who listen to communities. And frankly, neither the Labor or the Liberal Party have shown any evidence that that's what they do. Now, if you, if you have a longer memory, you remember how uh, uh, using um, community groups has been able to change governments. And so the Snowy River uh, faction had a big effect on uh, getting rid of rusted on National Party members in uh, a long time election, quite a long time ago. And uh, this has potential for that, hasn't it? Except that the people actually have a real problem with toxic waste. Yes, they do, that's right. And you've got an EPA that's basically a toothless tiger that hasn't been um, regulating in the interests of the community. But I think, I mean, for a lot of these people, for a lot of the people of Sunbury, this is the thing that's politicising them. It's made them actually realise that this is what they can be done over by politics. And for a lot of people, after seeing how they're being done over now, they might actually think, hey, wow, we actually do need to have people in our councils, in our parliaments, who represent us. And so if there's a groundswell, you know, if there was a, an independent from this community that wanted to stand and speak up for their community and be elected, that would be a fabulous thing. I mean, for, me, for me as a Green, it doesn't have to be the Greens, it just needs to be people in our parliaments who are genuinely committed to their communities rather than big business, the vested interests, the people who are the donors, huge donors to those political parties. You, you were, you were uh, 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 chanted down. It's because a lot of them, I mean, I think there are a lot of Liberal Party supporters here who um, want to be using this issue as a wedge against the Labor Party, and I find that unacceptable as well. I mean, good on, good on, the, good on if there are individual Liberal people, Liberals who want to be supporting the community, that's great, but you cannot trust them in government any more than you can the Labor Party. Thanks. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. This week, we conclude our analysis of the 2021 federal budget, dealing with taxation, childcare the NDIS, housing, aged care and domestic violence. It's been three years since the federal government announced its six-year schedule of income tax reforms and we're now halfway through the process. I looked in detail at the reforms and their effects three years ago and I think it's worth revisiting them. The income tax reform package culminates in the 2024-2025 financial year when Australians earning between $45,000 per year and $200,000 a year 
crowd into one mega tax bracket that attracts a marginal rate of just 30%, instead of the 32.5%, 37%, and 45% marginal rates they currently attract. The cost to government revenue will be around $12 billion a year, or $85 billion till the end of the decade, according to a 2019 Grattan Institute study. That study also shows where instinct probably leads, that in 2024-25, the income tax system will be less progressive than at any time since the late 1950s. Once stage three of the reforms hits with the great flattening of the tax schedule in 2024, there will be no new benefit to any taxpayer earning less than $45,000 per year, or about $860 per week. All those wage earners will see is the insidious slide of year-on-year -year bracket creep and an unindexed low-income tax offset of $700 per year maximum. In order to see the real-world effects of tax changes since the coalition came to power right through to the Great Flattening in 2024, I've crunched the numbers on tax liabilities for three groups from the period of the last Labor budget of 2013 onward. The three groups are 1. Those earning one half of the median wage, currently about $505 a week. 2. Those earning the median wage, currently at about $1,010 per week. and 3. Those earning double the median wage, currently about $2,020 per week. I've based the median wages on ABS figures up to 2018, estimates based on the wage price index up to 2021, and projections based on economist roundtables up to 2024. In calculating tax liabilities, I've included, as well as income tax, any Medicare levies and any universal rebates, that is to say, the low income tax offset and the low and middle income tax offset. These figures are all for singles without dependents. By covering the liabilities due to these three groups, ranging from half median income through to double median income, we include almost half of all PAYE taxpayers, ranging from the bottom end of the second quintile of earners through to the top of the fourth quintile. In 2013, the half median earners had a total tax liability of 3%, almost a third of which was the Medicare levy of about 1%. By this year, that Medicare levy has shot up to 1.5%, and their total tax liability sits at 5%. By the second year of the Great Flattening, total tax exposure to that group will have doubled from the labour years, right up to 6%. The only thing stopping the Medicare levy continuing to rise for that group is the fact that, for the first time since the wage price index was instituted in 1997, inflation, or the CPI, will rise above wage growth for the first time, and Medicare levy thresholds will likely follow CPI. The group on median income has paid a steady 2% Medicare levy since the Labor era, as has the higher income group. Since 2013, the tax liability of the median earners rose from 14.9% to 17% until 2018, when the low and middle income offset, known as the Lamington, came in. That offset, which has most impact for those earning $45,000 to $90,000 per year, along with other changes, reduced tax liabilities for the median earners from 17% to 15.3% in one year. Then, in 2020-2021 and 2021-2022, the Stage 2 tax changes came in. But the Lamington was extended for two years. 
which was never originally intended, meaning that group got another 1.8% reduction in tax liabilities. Bracket creep then takes over until, in 2024, the median wage group will be liable for 16.9% tax. The double median wage group does even better. Beginning in 2013 at a liability of 25.4%, the combination of bracket changes and the Lamington sees this group barely nudging 26.5% in 2019, before dropping 1.7% in one year, the year of the Great Flattening, when their liabilities drop from 25.9% to 24.6%. If I had extended the study out to yet higher earning groups, the tax savings would be even more significant. A quick example is those earning $200,000 per year, who in 2024 will see their top marginal rate drop from 45% to 30%. The government is not in any mood to walk away from Stage 3 of its tax plan. In fact, so keen were they that Stage 2 was bought in two years early, even if, by retaining the Lamington, it meant a huge giveaway to the middle, those earning between $45,000 a year and $120,000 a year benefiting most. The extension of the Lamington for one more year has cost the government $7.8 billion for that year. I have assumed by the government language that it will be axed after this financial year, but maybe not. If the government is re-elected and decides to continue it all the way to the Great Flattening, expect an extra $15 billion or more shortfall in revenues over the forward estimates. All of which brings me rather neatly to the NDIS. The scheme is expected by the government to cost $122 billion to both state and federal governments over the four-year forward estimates. The government is eager to call this a blowout and signal that changes will have to be made. It is a relief, however, that no changes have been made for the next four years and the government has kicked in an extra $13.2 billion over the forward estimates to meet demand. However, in coming years, we should watch out for attempted reforms to the NDIS, especially as the fiscal consolidation engine grinds into gear in about two years and the government looks for ways to constrain its budget to start to pay down COVID-related debt. There are three main ways to cope with the NDIS budget. One is to restrict who has access by increasing barriers against particular classes of disabilities or levels of disability. Another is to restrict the cost per beneficiary by disallowing particular services from subsidy. The recent reporting of Rick Morton from the Saturday paper in particular indicates that both these approaches are being worked on. Of course, a third option is to increase the revenue available to the NDIS. Since 2014, the half a percent Medicare levy increase has raised $23.2 billion, of which only $9 billion has been spent. If the Lamington were eliminated at the end of this financial year and the Stage 3 Great Flattening tax boondoggle were abandoned in 2024, around $110 billion of revenue would be available for the eight-year period at roughly $13.5 billion per year, which may be enough to keep the program healthy and solvent at least up till 2030. In addition to this, each half percent extra on the Medicare levy would raise at least $4.5 billion per year. Domestic violence has become a key issue in the budget and that's to be commended. State and federal frontline services are due to receive $416 million over the forward estimates. 
A key reform is the opening up of $1,500 emergency cash grants to partners leaving domestic violence situations, rising to $3,500 in funded in-kind benefits, totalling $165 million. If easy to access, these reforms should be well met. Aged care also gets a big leg up. As many have called for, the government has bitten the bullet and given itself two years to clear the backlog in home care packages, increasing its commitment fourfold on recent budgets at a cost of $6.5 billion over two years. 33,000 new part-subsidised recruits are hoped to be enlisted to provide the needed labour. Stretching over the four years of the forward estimates are increased aged care facility subsidies, increased standards of person-to-person -person care, up to 120,000 new GP consultations for the aged, and increased peer governance. Trickier reforms can be viewed together, those on childcare and on housing. The reason I see these as being similar is that both are built on policies of increased government subsidy, and in both industries we have seen before the familiar cycle of money input at one end, leading directly to increased costs. In the case of childcare, providers just absorb the subsidies in the market as increased fees. In housing, the increased money in homebuyers' hands just leads to increasing market prices for houses. It's worth pointing out that childcare subsidies rollout is not immediate, beginning in at least a year, so there is time for the government to try to find regulatory means to stop price gouging that may make any subsidies redundant. An expansion of an existing initiative enables Australians over 60 to roll over $300,000 of the proceeds of the sale of their homes into super. If enthusiastically taken up, as I suspect it will be, this has the benefit of cooling the housing market by increasing stock whilst also benefiting retirees with the associated tax benefits of super. This may be a winner. Over the last three weeks I've gone into perhaps too much detail on this federal budget and it will probably surprise listeners how much praise I have for several elements of the budget. To be blunt, I don't care which party is responsible when I see a well-constructed Keynesian approach to a budget in such unusual and difficult times I'll give credit where I think it's due, and hopefully I'll also see the downside, potential risks and inevitable missed opportunities and disappointments. I'll leave you on an optimistic note, the latest unemployment figures which came in two days ago. The headline figure is 5.5%, which confirms the bounce back in March. However, caution is warranted by the 0.3% drop in the participation rate. Although accounting for this, we still see a healthy 5.8% which is close to March's figure of 5.6%. Hours worked also sees a healthy bump, only fractionally off its March record. What's below the headline figures is an even stronger bump for female employment, small as of yet, but already exceeding the pre-COVID figure and leading the male employment figure. Upward and onward, we hope. Next week, I return you to normal programming as Peter Davis brings you his take on all things found over the wall. He'll be discussing the NDIS.
Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, Jacob Gritch, who is uh, one of my co colleagues at 3CR, who does uh, the uh, program on Friday um, on f- at 5.30. He's been doing it remotely. Um, because uh, you know it's a, it's a program that uh, allows him to uh, express opinions, and uh, being an intelligent man, he collects lots and lots of data. Uh, and uh, but he's been uh, going around the country uh, uh, promoting um, the need to support uh, Julian Assange, and uh, he's in town uh, again because he wanted to be at the rally today. For, uh, to support the Palestinians, which is going to start at one outside the state library. and uh, But I got to talk to Jacob about uh, the Julian Assange tour and uh, to find out uh, what was what happened. G'day, Jacob. G'day, uh, Anne. Thanks for talking to me. You've been on a long tour around the country uh, highlighting the uh, plight of Julian Assange. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about how the tour started? Oh, right, okay. Well... Basically, I was travelling with um, John Shipton, Julian's dad, and uh, other other friends, um, mob of us. We started going off around central Victoria, regional Victoria, up into New South Wales. And then that was so successful, we decided to do another one up the north coast of New South Wales. So we um, this tour, we went up to Brisbane, Nimbin, um went down the coast to Grafton, Port Macquarie, Newcastle, oh, Bellingen, Bundadgen, Byron Bay, everywhere. It just, it's, it was like, um, it reminded me when I was a young bloke being a roadie for a short time. You don't know which town you're in until you read the beer mats, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was the response? The response was pretty good. The response was good. Um, right up and down, like such different... How can I put it? There's different demographics as the Mardi Gras in Nimbin, the Mardi Gras, I should say, in Nimbin, um, all the way down to the Hunter Valley Workers Trades Hall in Newcastle. Um, people were coming out in droves, talking to us, giving us their support. New, new support groups have started up and down the coast. And, um, yeah, the, the point is to try to... Well, a couple of points to it. First of all, to... To get people to put pressure on their local member, because as you know, the um, the Labor Party has now passed a resolution in support of bringing Julian home, 
and um, we need to get people, particularly in um, non-liberal, like Labor Party and Country Party, National Party seats, to get onto their local member and urge them for their local member to join the um, Assange cross-party parliamentary group. So that's happening and pressure's been put on. And the other thing, of course, is to keep spreading the word because even a lot of people, even a lot of Julian supporters um, are a little bit, how can I put it, don't see him as a, a human being. He's, he's, a, he's a weird computer geek, you know. Um, so we're trying to, to humanise him. Humanise him a little bit to say this is a bloke who's you know got a partner and kids who comes from Australia, particularly like from Melbourne, and um, he spent some time in Lismore as a kid just outside of Lismore and saying this is the he's a you know without wanting to wrap ourselves in the Australian flag, it's he's a he's a child of the Australian soil and the values that he that he grew up with and. Um, the ideas he had and the spirit of rebellion and and the seeking for truth um, was part of what he learned here. And it's part of being, you know, what, what we think, as I say, without wanting to wrap myself up, um, what we think of and what we'd like to think of as the good part of the spirit of Australian egalitarianism. Do people understand uh, the broader issue of uh, press freedom? And in fact, well, it was something I read in a, a Red Sorghum just recently. Right. It's a Chinese book where yep. it, the quote is something of this nature, where freedom is a absence of fear. And uh, Julian Assange is actually... Uh, a symbol of uh, the fear that is being created by the uh, powers that be. Yeah, well, we, we do say that, um, and I think it's obvious, that the reason they're treating Julian the way they are is only partly because of punishment, because they don't gain anything from punishment. What they're trying to do is make... Well, they're afraid. Two things. It's based on fear. You, you, you're so right there, Annie. Um, both their own fear of... If Their the illegitimate truth, power. If the truth gets out about how, about our illegitimate power, about what we're really doing, then it can crumble. Um, but also to to put fear into the hearts of activists and journalists and people all around the planet, saying, you speak up, you step out of line, you tell the truth, you expose us, you take our mask off, and this is what we will do to you. This is what we can do, and this is what we will do. So it's, it's you know, I mean... We can get into the psychology of all the power-hungry buggers um, acting out of fear anyway, like their own personal little fears of why they want to control and manipulate and have power, um, right up and right up to their, um, you know, fear of being exposed for that. Well, it's it's interesting about Julian Assange too, is that he's so clever. He was so clever that he created a system that made it possible to pull the uh, curtain away from these uh, high level um, manipulative and violent uh, attacks on human uh, kind. Effectively, that's yeah. what's been going on. But he he um, was so clever. And the idea, I guess, is that humans generally are supposed to be peons rather than activists. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why even from his early days, like a lot of people wouldn't be aware, but in um, before all the WikiLeaks stuff, um, one of the things he worked on was providing a free internet service provider to the people in Melbourne. He called it Suburbia um, because he thought people should be connected and should have access to to information. I mean, there's you know there's the old there's the old trope um, of people of our generation that you know when calculators are being used in school and the teacher saying you didn't have you won't be walking around with a calculator in your pocket all day, will you? Well, we are. We're now walking around with the entire, you know, in in this little phone here that you know I've, I've got in front of me. Um, we're we're walking around with access to almost the entire knowledge of of human existence. Um, but the trouble is that people are being a they don't know how to use it. B they're being sidetracked with a whole lot of entertainments. And also, even the people who do know how to use it are being blocked from accessing that information through poverty, through laws, through a whole lot of other circumstances that the system uses to keep us under control. And so part of what Julian did was wanting to make that information available to everyone. Um, Do you know how he's faring at the moment? He's not doing that well, actually. Um, You know... He's probably doing better than most people, definitely better than I would be in his conditions of being locked up in a, you know, what is it, eight by eight or two and a bit metres by two and a bit metre cell 23 hours a day and for the other hour just being let into an identical cell for exercise. Um, I can't imagine what that would do to, to, someone's, to someone's brain. Um, but he's a resilient bloke. He's standing up and... Um, we're just waiting now on the um, on the UK justice system or injustice system to determine whether um, the Americans can appeal the the here the ruling that he can't be extradited for health grounds. So that happens on the seventh of June or by the seventh of June next month. And um, after that, he's either going to be free or you know a whole lot of other. A whole lot of other dates and um, mechanisms will have to be put in place to determine the hearing of the U.S. appeal. So I don't know what it'll do to his mental health. I think at the moment he's, you know, he's looking at the seventh of June, and that's as far as he needs to look forward. Just before we finish, um, when you went on these journeys to places around Australia and you put the case, and you ensured that he he wasn't just swept under the carpet. Yeah. Um, what were people's reactions? What, you know, tell me how people responded. Things really resonated with people. Well, there was a range of things. There were the people, of course, who were concerned for his human rights and for the fact that he was being kept away from his, his family, locked up in a cell 23 hours a day, the personal injustice of it um, on, on one human level. And then at the other level... And there were people who understood the bigger picture, I guess, about freedom of the press and the right of people to know. So you had it, it was a whole gamut because what this what the the saga of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks does is um, is it, it it's on so many levels. It is his personal story, but it's also the story of the bigger picture. 
and um, sometimes it's hard for people looking at the personal story to see the bigger picture and vice versa. So that's another thing we were trying to do by talking to people, saying, yeah, this is Julian, but it's not only Julian the man, Julian the human being, the son, the father, the partner, the mate, or whatever. Um, it's also Julian the fighter for press freedom and for digital rights. And that is a hero. And intellectual freedom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. that is a hero. Did you get any negative responses? Very minor. Hmm. Very minor. You still get the occasional dick who yells something out as they drive past. Or He's whatever. not a very nice guy. He's not a very nice guy. Yeah, you know, there's still, you know, bits and pieces of um, the he helped Trump get elected and all that kind of stuff, you know, like uh, to which we just reply, is that... If he's that, um, that pally, powerful. And if he's that um, pally with Trump, what's he doing in yeah, Belmarsh yeah, prison? Yeah, if he's that powerful, what's he doing in a terrorist cell, you know? Mm. Yeah. It also puts um, a real, uh, it's a real eye-opener around the con of terrorist, uh, the fight against terror, actually. You know, that t- terror is the thing that we should be fighting against and using all our resources so that we can yeah. uh, surveil everybody. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's you know, the, the whole thing of the, the panopticon, that they're watching everything we do. And when you talk about the fight against terror and they're surveilling everybody, yeah, that's, there's another aspect to Julian's trial, was that um, he was um, spied upon during his meetings with his legal team. Yeah. Now, we had a situation here in Melbourne with Lawyer X where the question of guilt or otherwise of the people convicted was never raised, but just the fact that she was passing confidential client information to the police meant people had to be released. And these weren't people who were publishing. All right? So so that whole kind of... um, That is a terror in itself, the way they've... They've put aside one of the very basic um, principles of our Western legal system. Mm. Thanks for talking to me. What what are you going to do next with that uh, particular campaign? I don't know what's happening with that campaign, mate. I think we're all a bit frazzled after the last one. It is hard. Like, it's it's, it's hard work. Um, I don't know that we'll do that. we haven't got plans for another. But you're waiting till June the 7th to see what but happens But we're waiting next. for June the 7th to see what happens next. In the meantime, I'm going up to Brisbane for the um, Land Warfare Conference, Land Forces Conference, where um, the, the army and the industry and the government get together to talk about how we can all rub our hands together and make a quid in killing people overseas. Should be a hoot. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the perfect timing of the week award has to go to Big Supremo Scuttlebim Moore son, a.k.a. Scummo, and the gang for, on the very day the International Energy Agency declared there should be no new investment in coal and gas, while solar and wind projects need to be increased fourfold if the planet is to reach net zero by 2050, they, the gang, announced a new gas-fired power plant at public expense because the private sector has decided new coal and gas power would be stranded assets. With the Minister for Bearing Your Head in the Sand, Angus Palings, boasting the government was investing in that which caring business class philosophy says is no business of government, we have to step in to make markets work the way they should. Indicating Angus has missed the little point that the market is, for once, working the way it should. 
as unplanned as the delicate flower that is the economy is, the energy and fossil lot are smart enough to know when it's, when it's time not to waste the profits their lazy avaricious workers make for them. And let me assure the slightly cynical, the little matter of a New South Wales by-election in the very electorate where the government will move back into owning a power station being held today has nothing to do with the announcement. Scummo and Angus will tell us that, and they are honourable men. So are they all, all honourable men, as the Bard wrote. OK, he was talking about a gang of killers, but... And the Socialist Party federal member Meryl Swansong for principal welcomed the decision. We need the jobs. We need reliability of supply to ensure big aluminium plant Fomatoma Go fossils can continue to produce. I'm not backing down on this. See, principles. Wonder what Meryl's going to provide a transition, doing to provide a transition for those workers when the fossils become fossils or the planet fries to death, whichever comes first. Oh, I'm sure she's working her guts out for them. Doubtless, Scummo and Angus and Merrill and the Socialist Party's former fossil spokesperson, Joel Fitzgibbon Prophet, who also applauded the gas plant, will tell us the International Energy Agency doesn't know what it's talking about is some long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron lot bent on destroying the economy. Except for one minor point. The IEA was established by the world's fossils themselves to represent their interests. And even it can see the writing on the wall. It does also recommend burying your head in the sand and nuclear power, which apparently is totally benign, and Scummo and Angus and the gang and Merrill and Josh would go along with them there. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being oozy, nonetheless said the Socialists opposed the proposal. Uh, you're against building new fossil power stations, Anthony. Uh, no, no, we, we don't oppose them. The, the government, we oppose the government building them. It, it's the business of the private sector. Another strong performance. Well, governments used to own them all, but uh, thankfully we now enjoy the efficiency and policy certainty and the promised lower prices handing essential services over to the private sector has wrought. And anyway, a few deaths from frying the planet is a small price for the economic gain of fossils. Like the few, well, she didn't say how many, deaths we must accept to open up the economy expressed by the big supremo of Virgin on Cruelty Airline on behalf of the caring business class. We must balance those interests and we assume those advocating killing a few people in the national interest don't envisage themselves being the dead. The dangers of socialism were exposed when the state socialists brought down a budget which imposed costs on the caring business class, hitting windfall property profits, for instance, and a levy on the filthiest rich or the filthy rich to fund addressing mental health. And after last week, when big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs gave the caring business class tax cuts and other incentives like massive corporate welfare to drive the economy and make life better for all of us, therefore receiving glowing media tributes, how that has exposed the dangers of socialism. Victoria's horror budget, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 screamed yesterday, and Lord Rupert of Wapping was in disbelief. His Wapping sin, divided we spend, clash over class warfare. 
fancy forcing the poor, filthiest rich of the filthy rich dears to spend a bit of that filthy rich on accountants and tax lawyers coming up with new ways of avoiding the new, new imposts, while, of course, meeting all their legal tax obligations. That caring non-employer, which appears to make huge profits without employing anyone, deliver poo, will appeal a fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a decision that it did employ a worker it's sacked and must re-employ him and pay him what he's lost. Uh, so you sacked him because he didn't meet your time limits. Oh, that's right, Deliveroo spokesperson Rick Rippemoff confirmed. And he had to wear your uniform. Oh, that's right. And you allotted the work he had to do. Exactly, that's right. But he didn't work for you. No way. He is an independent contractor. Does he have a business tax number? Stopped if I know. What's that got to do with it? Well, he's acting illegally as a contractor. If he hasn't, you should report him to the tax, de- tax department. A Deliver Poo spokeswoman did say, no satire, the company rejects the premise upon which the decision was taken, which was that the person who worked for them worked for them. And the company was appealing to protect the workers' freedoms, presumably the freedoms not to work for the company for which they work, showing the appeal has nothing to do with ripping off workers, but the Liverpool's concern for workers who don't even work for it. What generosity. Apologies to Zion over my erstwhile comments on its behaviour. Have I been wrong? Thankfully, my misconception has been cleared up by no less an expert and thinker than our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander. The violence at the Alaska Mosque, Alexander informed us, with the wisdom he brings to everything, was provoked by Hamas to give poor Zion a bad name, with evil Iran, the puppeteer behind evil Hamas. Poor innocent Zion lured into a venomous trap. And a two-state solution won't work because evil Iran and evil Hamas don't want it. So thanks to Alexander, we know the almost exponential seizure of the non-land to which the Palestinian non-land non-people were banished, leaving no space for the second state, has nothing to do with little problems in the two-state solution nor that what is now Zion was once called, wait for it, Palestine, used to be the home of the non-state, non-people, has nothing to do with it either. Or Alexander would have mentioned all that. Alexander is such a deep thinker, isn't he? It would be good if we could get him on this program to give us more of his pearls of. On matters of train killing, see the Socialist Party would-be minister for going overseas and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, took aim at the minister for train killing and being offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, and a couple of senior government bureaucrats and members claiming they should cool it over their alleged stress, alleged belligerence toward evil China, when all Pete and the team are doing is warning us we would love to go to war and use up all that beautiful train-killing equipment we spend trillions on, or on which, but never mind. Anyway, just as Penny was saying, cool it, the socialist would-be minister for train-killing and being offensive, Pat Conraygun, was attacking Pete and the team for not spending enough on train killing. Isn't it heartening indeed, reassuring to know a socialist government wants to spend even more? 
our soldiers, sailors and air crew are not getting the equipment they need when they need it. Pat got stuck into the Conservatives. Uh, when they need it, Pat? Yes, yes, when they have to kill people. And you don't think those trillions could just perhaps be better spent? You won't say that when we have to kill people, uh, like Chinese people. This is not about China. Great to see Pat getting into the spirit of the train-killing business, one of the world's biggest and most honourable industries. Which brings us back to the attacks on poor Zion by the non-land, non-people. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden capital, simultaneously finally called for a ceasefire while approving 942 million, real figure, of precision-guided missiles for Zion. Well, why let a little bit of slaughter get in the way of a business deal? And thanks to precision guidance, all those innocent men, women and children are but collateral damage. Zion keeps telling us it regrets every death. There is a fairly simple way to avoid that regret, but what would that do for the great business that is the merchants of death? Finally, just a bit of fun to wind up the week. A quiz. It's a tough one, so big a challenge I won't give you the answer till next week because you'll need all that time to figure it out. This injecting room the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin is in a state of apoplexy over, claiming it's planned for Flinders Street. The government claims it has no plans, but the Wapping Sin hasn't let that upset it. Two P1 sensation, sensation stories this week. Monday, nightmare on Flinders Street. It screams. Wednesday, Junkie Town, screeched at us. Now, the quiz. Does the Whopping Sin's objective just report the facts? Unbiased coverage indicated A, supports the proposal, or B, does not support the proposal? Told you it was tough. OK, you've got a week to think about it. Good morning. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community powered radio. Yeah, back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? I'm terrific, thanks, Annie. How are you today? I'm and good. I hope all of your listeners are enjoying the crisp sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> See, uh, Melbourne does. You're a Sydney man, and uh, Melbourne does um, autumn beautifully. Oh no, 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 no! I'm a Melbourne man now. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, because I come from the country. You've, uh, well, I was brought up in the country, but uh, unless you were uh, had grandparents there before you, then uh, you were always an incomer. Yes, yes, um, <laughs> yes. Well, I'm beginning. To, I'm, I'm. I am learning every day about how little I know about Melbourne. And, oh, that's an exciting uh, thing! All the new things to learn. All, all of the time, including uh, my current treats involve the Yarra Trail, which is uh, uh, a beautiful concept and uh, enjoying it very much. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we're, I've got you to talk to because uh, Life Campaign has also got a budget response uh, Zoom going to happen on Thursday and you'd like people to know about it and also uh, tell people about why it was important for someone like the uh, Life Campaign to actually do a budget response. Yes. Well, uh, I think that... Uh it's a very important thing that we're trying to do. Uh, all volunteers with no financial resources, of course. Um, the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign is uh, now just over a year old. And we, uh, you know, we still have much to learn about how we can build a credible, a more credible response amongst working class organisations, that is unions, welfare activist groups, pensioner groups, unemployed workers' union organisations and so on. Um, one of the reasons why we come together is because the dominant practice amongst all of those organisations is firstly, it's uh, when they hit a problem created by employers or the government is to complain about it and the action strategy is then pursued in, or the metaphor we use is in silos, and we're trying to bring together waged workers, uh, plus uh, through their unions, of course, there's the main organisations for them, uh, and bring them together with welfare organisations, unemployed groups, pensioner organisations, and so on. Uh, so we're having a, another budget reply, our own budget reply, as we did last year. We're going to be doing that this coming Thursday night, uh, 7.30, through, an, through a Zoom conference. And uh, I think the main thing to be talking about without going into specific detail is conceptually why this is so important. Firstly, it's really challenging the tendency around, um, around these forces where people are feeling budgeted out. They're sick of the budget. Unfortunately, we can't afford to be. And one reason for this is that this budget from the Morrison government is going to unravel. And that means there is going to be constant tweaking by the government because its fundamental purpose was to be an election budget, to prepare the grounds for an election before the next budget. So they will be needing, the government that is, will be needing to tweak its decisions in this budget and in various ways, some of them highly suspect, of course, to use the reserve fund that they put aside uh, for electioneering purposes, which is a part of the budget, an announced part of the budget. Isn't that outrageous? So that, Isn't that outrageous? We, that, well, it is and it isn't. It's not unusual, and I think it's, in principle, quite sensible to have, for any government to have a reserve fund for particular circumstances that arise that for which there has been no preparation. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, that makes sense. But people have been... Uh, people are so untrusting uh, of this particular brand of government or this particular version of the of an LNP government that they're actually even saying that they're wondering if they've, they're use, going to use it as an election war chest. Well, that's the particular point, of course, about the way in which the LNP use it, which is 
now potentially going to be replicated by any other future governments because they've been given permission to by this one. No, it's a disgrace and it's a corruption. It's a corruption. It shouldn't, I mean, just because they're creating precedent doesn't make it all right. It's like that thing about just because someone keeps saying something doesn't make it true. The, uh, that's true, and it is it is corrupt in a certain form. But the important point about this is that, therefore, you know, if you're if you're really serious about winning battles to improve the standard of living of the working class, whether they're in wages or not, you just can't afford to be so self indulgent as to let yourself be budgeted out. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. What we're okay. Thursday night is is trying once again to uh, build a picture of what's wrong with this budget that joins together the perspectives of the three, of the three or four major types of organisations. So next Thursday night we'll have the wonderful Ali Pennington from the Centre for Future Work uh, as the lead speaker, and she'll be supported by uh, a, a representative from the First Nations Workers. Uh, Alliance, uh, Lara Watson, uh, and there's a particular, there's an extra reason for that, of course, because um, the, the particular thing that Ali will bring to the analysis is one uh, is the fact that this budget is dependent upon wages growth. However, the official policy of the government, demanded by the employers, is to <laughs> suppress wages. And the deliberate intent to suppress wage is actually captured in the budget papers themselves. So there is an inherent contradiction. And Ali will be, uh, and have, the Centre for Future Work have already been explaining this issue, which has been picked up in some elements of the mainstream media. And Ali was uh, one of the main authors of the work, analysing the dependence of the budget upon wages in the face of deliberate wages suppression. Uh, And so she'll be leading off. I think what makes it so important that we've been able to get Lara Watson from the First Nation Workers Alliance uh, to speak is that, uh, of course, this budget does very little for First Nations peoples in general, uh, but uh, they have succeeded after a four-year struggle which with this government is actually not a long time to win a big battle, but nevertheless, a four-year struggle. This the, the FNWA and other uh, First Nations organisations have forced the government to agree to withdraw the Community Development Program in the Northern Territory, which was really a work for the doll racist program. Yeah, but that's, and, uh, and the C- the CDP thing is uh, a very. Uh, interesting development because I haven't actually said what they're going to do about it. But also the CDP in its past incarnation wasn't a cruel policy. It's this government that's created, you know, it was actually about self-determination originally. Now it's being used as, it was used as a stick on the back of uh, First Nations people. And then... um, uh, and and at the same time, you've got uh, the uh, infection of the um, 
We're, uh, what is it? The uh, cashless debit card, which is being inflicted on First Nations people. So, you know, it's either a victory or it's uh, something to be concerned about. You know what I mean? Well, uh, your listeners, if you join in on uh, on that Zoom conference uh, next Thursday night, you'll be able to hear Laura talking about those three points. Yeah, good. Uh, sorry, you'll be able to hear Lara talking about those three points, which is, I think, uh, uh, really terrific. We'll have other speakers as well. And um, this time, uh, I have two, two previous national Zoom public meetings have featured information on the cashless welfare debit card from the organisation uh, led wonderfully by Catherine Wilkes uh, with support from Sano7. Uh, uh, on this occasion, they are not going to lead this discussion. Uh, Lara will be doing so. But we're going to follow up with a specific program dedicated to the cashless welfare debit card. It'll, and that will be um, will be inviting um, uh, Catherine and hopefully a representative from, the, from Sano7 to provide a detailed analysis of what's so wrong about the cashless welfare debit card. And why people uh, should be concerned. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, uh, of course, because they are, they are able to point to various government meetings where there has been serious discussion about extending the cashless welfare debit card to the pension and other, other government incomes. Yeah, yeah. Cause that, that is the intent of this government. To yeah, go yeah, yeah. If they can. That, but to go back to the budget, because it's what we're trying to do is improve the relationships between the different types of working class organisations so that they can join together in action, not just in complaining. Getting them to complain together uh, is, uh, you know, there's room for improvement there. But moving that into coherent action and policy, joint policy and action is the next stage, if you like, that needs to be uh, developed. Uh, one of the features of next Thursday night is that we will have uh, Dr. Sarah Russell, who is emerging now as a prominent expert, uh, friendly to pensioners and aged people and their families, who has got a trenchant, very clear analysis of what is so wrong about the aged care uh, budget uh, uh, budget framework. And so we'll be, everyone will be able to get their head around at a deeper level about what the government is really, the menace the government is up to in, in, in terms of the, the, the so-called response to the Aged Care Royal Commission. Well, so, it's been it's been stated that uh, what this budget really does is um, for all those people who are not engaged, which is the majority, will feel that everything is now under control, that they've dealt with uh, issue, the important issues that have been brought up, like uh, domestic violence and um, the aged care uh, horror and uh, a whole range of other things. And uh, when you actually look at it, what they've really done, the majority of their budget is actually about a major cat. Uh, cut, uh, tax cuts to corporate Australia and some personal tax cuts to middle Australia? Well, the high-end tax cuts um, are still to come, but that the government is determined to press on with those. And, of course, what uh, is still not reaching into the mass consciousness is that the tax offset for um, 
is, has been extended for a year, but that's just a deferral yeah. of a tax increase at the lower end of tax of, of wages. Yeah, it's fascinating, so, isn't it, how you can use the tax uh, system to... Uh, People feel like they're being advanced, but then it has this uh, the slow creep that uh, happens. Well, the, the Frodenberg the government generally, um, are, that is one thing they are good at. They yeah. are good at marketing for a week or three or five or six in such a way that people get deluded into thinking there's not a problem when in fact there is. Yeah. And, yeah. So... This well, event. you know what someone told me the other day? They told me the other day that uh, Tom Elliott on 3AW has been telling his audience that uh, the only people who can really talk about the economy are, are people who have, who've run a small business. And I, and I think to myself, talk about um, uh, proselytising to people who feel aggrieved when that is so, so, so wrong. <laughs> Well, it's certainly not true. And what everyone who tunes into this event next Thursday night, the representatives that will be speaking are all people who come out of active organisations of the people. And some of them are working on the smell of an oily rag or with no income at all. Uh, Ali, of course, uh, is not. She works for the Centre for Future Work. And uh, Ali Pennington, that is, who will be leading the event. Uh, but many of the speakers are uh, either representative of and in the thick of the struggle that they, their own organisation is trying to develop uh, on behalf of uh, working class people, whether they're in wages or whether they are dependent on government incomes in some way. Don, so, how do people get to be part of this? Well, at, at the at the Life Campaign Facebook page, uh, there is an event notice, of course, and there is a registration link. So you register online uh, to uh, be able to join in. And also, uh, we will be live streaming from Facebook, through Facebook. Good. So we're using the, you know, we're just using the Zoom technology and Facebook technology to enable people to join in. And uh, I think uh, this is this is a very important event because uh, we are trying to lay the foundation for an awareness that there will be necessity, not just opportunity, but necessity to lift the cooperating struggle uh, of the various organisations that are involved at key moments over the next 12 months. Because, as I said, this, gov- this budget is going to unravel. It is dependent on wages in the face of a deliberate policy to suppress wages. It's a dependent on wage increases, I should say, uh, in the face of a deliberate policy to suppress wages. And that means there's going to be uh, blowouts or misspendings or inadequate spendings or a lot of puffery. And so they will have to make adjustments because remember, the whole purpose of the budget is to set the government up for an election before the next budget. Yeah. So, uh, and with the uh, life campaign, as with all these organ- your organisations, umbrella, uh, the idea is to set the message uh, uh, nationally and to work locally, to uh, disrupt locally. And, and I think there is growing uh, demand 
for not just, as I said, for complaint, but also action. Now, if we're going to have action, we've got to have a clear vision, or vision is not quite the right word, but a clear concept of what we want instead. So it's raising the whole prospect and the potential of what we might call a people's budget. So in the period leading up to uh, a certain point in the budget cycle, the government's budget cycle, all of these organisations are able to arrive at a common position which amounts to a people's budget. And there was a, there have been attempts to do this in the past. A people's budget, of course, requires a democratic mobilisation of people's organisations, working-class organisations, to bring it to the wider public view. OK, Don, uh, we had to go. We really literally were up, up to the wire. We'll uh, hear from you on Thursday. I mean, I'm going to tune in. Hopefully other people will too. Yeah. Look forward to lots of your listeners joining in. And all the best to everybody. Bye for now. And it is literally up to the wire. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And uh, don't forget the rally for Palestine, uh, 1pm outside the State Library. We're going to go out with uh, a song that you might um, relate to. I lost me job when me boss went broke First time in 30 years I'd been out of work I thought I'd apply for unemployment benefits So off I went down to Centrelink I stood in line that stretched out the front door When I finally got to the counter I asked for a form They said I should have rung up or used the internet Cause that's the way they do things now at Centrelink Slightly disgruntled, I went home and made the call When I finally spoke to a human, it was half past four I was hot and dry and I needed a drink I'd put in a hard day's work at Centrelink They asked all sorts of questions about who did what with who So wonder they didn't want to know the last time I had a poo They gave me a long list of documents to bring Tomorrow when I went back You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.